At the signal, time will be out of joint. Welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and I'm here with Sean. Hello. And this week's theme takes us to the very end of the last century, to the year 1999, and into the nascent stages of our present digital age, as we encounter a phenomenon born of mass information and culture, that is, hyperstition. Um, Hyperstition is, perhaps fittingly, a term I only actually became aware of uh, when it transpired that it was something we were, in fact, perpetuating through a speculative fiction project I'd been working on for a couple of years with Sean, uh, entitled Praetor Limina, exploring ideas of magic, demonology, and the occult through the filter of supposedly discovered fact. But Sean, why don't you tell us in more detail about what exactly hyperstition is? Hyperstition is a coinage of Nick Land and the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. Land and the CCRU were active at the University of Warwick in the mid-1990s to the very early 2000s. Land was a maverick philosopher who combined occultism, continental theory, science fiction, cybernetics and fringe and alternative um, scientific approaches in an effort to create a new philosophy of capitalism and technology. Now, something we want to acknowledge right here and now is the era of Nick that we're talking about is the interesting era, the most interesting era, which is when he was involved with CCRU at Warwick. Subsequently from that, he got super racist. Yeah, became a kind of intellectual figure of the alt-right. Yeah, for a while the alt-right was called uh, The Dark Enlightenment, and that's because of a long essay he wrote called The Dark Enlightenment. Um, (laughs) And it goes without saying that we uh, have you know, we have no sympathy or an interest in that period of his work. Um, such a cool name, though. It's such, it's such a cool name, isn't it? Anyway, and, but that does not make it good. No. Um, so, hyperstitions. A hyperstition is a kind of meme, and that's a meme in the original Dawkins sense of the word. Uh, a meme is an idea that spreads from host to host not because it's true, but because it has uh, a certain usefulness to it, or there's a desirability in its transmission and perpetuation. It's kind of like an analogous system to genetics. It's uh, passing on ideas in the same way genes would be passed on, uh, deciding on kind of the fittest or most appropriate given the situation. Hmm. Uh, It's worth pointing out that there is um, there are problems with Dawkins' notion of memes and the SBC criticism for it, um, but we're not, we don't need to spend that much time <laughs> we, uh, to- talking about that because it has we're a neither certain... of us behavioural ecologists. <laughs> but it has a certain face validity, like we all know. Like it's, it's trying to come up with an idea of how do we scientifically approach the way that stories and ideas spread. Mm-hmm. So, a hyperstition. Uh, I like to think of hyperstitions as circumstances where you shoot the movie before the events it's based on have actually happened. A hyperstition is a cultural artefact in the sense in the sense of an artefact being a main thing. It's a deliberately engineered piece of culture. And when it goes viral, it alters the actual material composition of society in order to make itself true. Land gives the example of Neuromancer, the one of the foundational texts of Cyberpunk. Uh, as, an exa- uh, as an example of a hyperstition, because in Neuromancer, Gibson popularised the notion of cyberspace, which helps inspire 
the scientists who create the internet, who make this cultural artefact real. We actually had our own project, uh, Freighter Limina, ended up going a similar direction, despite our best intentions. Some people took it, not took it to be real, but took us to have some sort of alternate agenda in creating it. We were accused of being disinfo agents by a man on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which uh, I think is the, uh, that was the proudest moment of my life, that accusation. That's amazing. And that <laughs> yeah. was interesting, Luca, another lesson we kind of gloriously failed to learn from Robert Anton Wilson in the 1970s, who had similar experiences at kind of uh, occult and uh, conspiracy conferences and things. Yeah, that actually seems to be a very frequent occurrence. Uh, Mark Pilkington, who's someone that we want to one day get on this podcast, mm-hmm. in his book about um, disinformation and UFO folklore, mentions that he's been accused of being an MI6 disinfo agent, which is exactly the kind of thing a disinfo agent would say. <laughs> anyway, Slenderman. Let's talk a bit about Slenderman, mm-hmm. or Slenderman as I sometimes prefer to call him. <laughs> so uh, the Slenderman is a really, really good example of a hyperstition. The character, in case you don't know, is a creature who is unnaturally tall and slender. He appears always wearing a suit. He doesn't have a face. Sometimes he's uh, depicted with tentacles coming out of his back. Mm. And he has the ability to manipulate people, to possess people. He can manipulate electronics from a distance and so on. Mm. And Slenderman is obviously, obviously, he's completely made up. He's totally unreal. But it was Slenderman was created just as an attempt to create a new bit of folklore. Just mm. some uh, some guys on the internet on the, I think it was on something awful forums. It's kind of ad hoc competition. Yeah, they just they, they had a little contest to say, hey, who can make the best spooky black and white photo with Photoshop? Mm. And someone created Slenderman. He just put this image in the background of the, you can search for him very very easily in the yeah. background of a uh, of a playground. I think of our children, and and the thread where that was published. People just started chipping in and, cre- and created this mythos mm. around this obviously knowingly artificial character. And eventually it goes off forum and it takes off in the wider uh, internet sphere, especially on YouTube, where mm. it was um, picked up by the guys who made Marble Hornets, which is a really, really uh, cool sort of extended horror series about, um, uh, it's done as a found footage thing, yeah. fact, a group of people interacting with uh, the Slender Man and his proxies. And that was interesting as well because it developed a lot of the lore around Slender Man. It kind of formalised it, but it drew on a lot of currents that were um, just coming out of all sorts of um, different you know, sites and websites and, and threads and things uh, to do with Slender Man, just developing a mythos. And it developed a very kind of definite mythos. It's uh, something that's very much associated with information technology, which they capitalised on fantastically uh, through the found footage medium, but also um, not just that, but actually releasing it in real time as the apparently true events of a person uh, being persecuted by mm-hmm. the forces. That they never actually call him Slenderman in Marble Hornets as well. He's referred to, I think, in some notes as the operator. But again, this that spilled over into reality in slightly more disturbing ways. Yeah, in uh, 2014 in Wisconsin, two 12-year-old girls attacked a friend of theirs. Uh, they repeatedly stabbed her. And they did this as a kind of offering to Slenderman, who it seems they very honestly believed to be a real entity with whom they had an interaction and with whom they had a connection or a relationship of some kind. Mm. Um, the god they attacked survived absolutely miraculously yeah. against all uh, against all the odds pulled through. And the girls themselves, like, uh, 
it should go without saying clearly they were very ill they were obviously had profound mental health problems mm. to have because um, one of them reported that she believed she could contact other fictional characters yeah. like um, Harry Potter and the like and uh, they, and as of uh, this year they've been sentenced the two girls have been sentenced to 40 and 25 years incarceration in mental institutions mm. which speaking as uh, someone who knows nothing about this it's a little bit harsh considering they were ill children but mm. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that worked actually because it's an example of where we see two people buying into a kind of shared mythology. Um, this wasn't just a kind of individual delusion that someone was labouring under. It was um, combining uh, pre-exist, probably I'm speculating, pre-existing mental conditions with um, a plethora of different kind of resources and ideas that were already there for them to kind of co-opt. And and that's why um, I mean when you do get people um, who really, really go into quite extreme lengths with uh, conspiracy theories and uh, paranoia surrounding uh, kind of information, uh, gang stalking a lot of the time and various persecutions like that. They seem to actually, they're not entirely born of their own minds. They take on these elements and form them into a worldview. And that seems to be a great kind of collective act that a lot of people are doing. Uh, sometimes in bad faith, sometimes uh, entirely innocently. <laughs> Interestingly, um, the recent incidents with the um, supposedly sonic warfare perpetrated against uh, American agents at the embassy in Cuba, um, or kind of by, as far as we, we don't necessarily know who that's by yet. We have no idea who that's or, by. Or what even the nature of the weapons were. But that was something that had existed for a very long time as um, similarly, kind of like gang stalking, one of these internet-born conspiracy theories. I remember uh, it was when I was living in Norwich. Um, there were Someone had actually gone on a stickering campaign putting these printed out posters saying that they were also being subject to acoustic warfare uh, using modified microwave technology and stuff. <laughs> Um, to kind of blast into their homes. But it's that is living evidence of how these kind of hyperstitious ideas take on a real gravity. Yes, they do. They become materially significant, even if they're ultimately untrue. Mm. Um, which is, you know, it's exactly what we saw with the case in that with uh, the Slender Man stabbing in Wisconsin. Uh, and we're going to see something similar right now. Yeah, which is why we're going to be talking about the Blair Witch Project. This is Burkittsville. Formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town. Much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago. Many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time. To us, anyway. Yet legend tells a different story. One whose evidence is all around us. Etched in stone. So, The Blair Witch Project is, for all intents and purposes, an independent horror film created by Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez, uh, presented in the form of a videotape recovered from the belongings of three college filmmakers following an ill-fated trip into the woods of Maryland. It stars Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Laird, all of whom, for the purposes of realism, would perform under their own names. Um, the recording initially begins as a documentary created by its three central protagonists that attempts to explore the legend of a witch whose presence has supposedly haunted the region since colonial times and is believed to be connected to a series of gruesome incidents in the woods surrounding the towns of Burkittsville. 
After a day of interviewing the residents of Burkittsville, uh, the party venture into the woods themselves on the trail of several sites connected to the legend. However, the project is thrown into disarray when the party become hopelessly and inexplicably lost. Uh, from this point onwards, the subject of the film turns instead to the party's mounting frustration and fear as the presence of occult forces at work within the wood become ever more apparent. Nevertheless, at the persistent instigation of Heather, the group continue their efforts to document the proceedings, even after a member of their party, Josh, is apparently abducted, tortured, and later, we presume, killed. And the remaining two's attempt to find them leads them into a deserted house filled with sinister occult inscriptions, where the two are themselves eventually killed. Where is he? Where are you? Come on, Josh! I hear him downstairs. Come on, I hear him downstairs! I think it's uh, interesting to contrast the Blair Witch Project with our last film, Shivers, in that both Shivers and the Blair Witch Project are examples of a kind of uh, documentary-style naturalism, mm. uh, or a naturalistic approach to film. Or at least have been kind of treated that way in a critical sense. Mm. In the same way um, that The Living Dead, a lot of it, the kind of more gruesome bits are described as being seen in a documentary fashion, uh, this kind of just objective witnessing of uh, often horrific events. Mm. But the thing that makes Shivers and The Blair Witch Project different is that Shivers is a very cold film, it's a very scientific film, a very clinical film. Uh, as we went to some of the same last time, um, there's not really any characterization as such in Shivers. It doesn't mm. really feel like you're looking at characters. But with The Blair Witch Project, the opposite, if anything, is the case. It's um, surprisingly warm, almost. Mm. Um, it's There's a great deal of familiarity between uh, the participants, and we partake in that um, familiarity as well. It feels like we're there along with them. Mm. And there's something very um, almost uncomfortably intimate about... The way that um, uh, the way that we view them, the way that we relate to them, like they keep in uh, little details like um, Heather getting her hair caught in her rucksack at one point. It has it feels uh, feels too real, too familiar. That's precisely where the discomfort comes from. In fact, it doesn't feel like we're viewing anything artificial. It does indeed feel like this is some kids lost in the woods. Indeed, some of the more kind of charged outbursts when things really start going wrong were entirely unscripted and were uh, more or less a windfall to the filmmakers because they were able to edit them in very cleverly to just steadily raise the dramatic tension of the film. Yeah, there's a really interesting contrast between the narration that Heather gives at the beginning of the film when she's still... Figure, oh, I'm filming a documentary here, but she and she gives uh, it's a bit it's a bit rubbish, really. The narration <laughs> that she gives is all a little bit too spoopy for me. It's kind uh, of schlock. It's very yeah schlock. Uh, it's, it's very very schlocky. Um, talking about sort of like how many children there are in this graveyard, kind of it's a bit of that building. Yeah, but when we contrast that with the rest of the dialogue, we see just how um, just how much they really were going for this sense of uh, realism, a sense of intimate realism. But, I mean, as well as um, large parts of the film being unscripted or kind of semi-scripted, um, it's worth noting also that even though the cast were aware that they were making a film, uh, they'd been given a brief. They were told that this is a fictitious film. There will be certain kind of unpleasant things they'll have to experience themselves in the creation of it. Um, but one of the things that they were under the impression of at the time was that the Blair Witch legend in the area was, in fact, a real story and that this was... Um, 
almost entirely factual information that they were reporting, when in fact the entire thing was a kind of a fabrication on the part of the filmmakers, um, Eduardo Sanchez and uh, David Merrick. But, I mean, it was kind of woven together from different real accounts, but this was very much an invention of the of the uh, writers. And um, it's kind of interesting when we see uh, bits of this, uh, of this legend uh, bleeding over into the uh, events of the film, uh, particularly the closing scenes where we see, well, we're seeing from Heather's perspective, uh, she goes and finds Mike in a basement room and he's facing a wall. And this is a call back to a passing reference very, very early on in the film where uh, they talk about a serial killer who was apparently uh, possessed by the spirit of this witch or had been uh, receiving messages from this ghost of a witch who later went on to kill his victims in an identical fashion, making them stand, making um, one stand against the wall while their friend was killed before killing them in turn. I remember when I first watched this from as a teenager, I didn't get that reference. I missed the callback, okay. which, if anything, just kind of made it... Um, well, it made it very, a very different experience because there was something totally inexplicable going on here that he had his back to her, which I remember thinking is, was, that was genuinely very, very nightmarish because yeah. it didn't make any sense at all. So what have you seeing. bought into? Mm. What, do we, what do we not know at this point? And how much have we not known throughout the film? Mm. I used to, I would, um, you know, um, uh, with an old DVD player, you, know, you could go scene by scene. Yeah. I would do that through that last scene just to see if there was any glimpse of the witch. Uh-huh. Uh, and indeed there was not, as indeed is the point. Which I think they um, actually tried to do in one of the unsuccessful sequels. I'm not sure which, but that's best, best I'm, left forgotten. I'm given to understand that in the sequel that came out a couple of years ago, uh, you see the witch, which is what we needed, apparently. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm just so glad they sorted that out for us, because that's, exa- that's uh, exactly what we needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... But yeah, I mean, thinking about the Blair Witch Project um, in a theoretical sense, uh, we're given this term documentary horror or found footage, which is uh, basically fiction presented as fact. But to describe it as that is kind of ultimately a very reductive thing, uh, not just in the sense that um, there is a blending of fiction fact happening on the screen, um, but in the sense that documentary as a recording of objective fact is traditionally an extremely, um, extremely sketchy area because um, documentary, you know, documentaries can report on things, they can depict things that definitely did happen, but these events are very often shaped by uh, the presence of uh, documentary filmmakers or the knowledge that it's going to be in a documentary. And like the very, the very earliest documentaries were um, riddled with outright fabrications. Mm. Uh, so there's no way to check it at the time, obviously. So yeah. They would just um, make, make shit up and present it as fact. It's like the Nook of the North isn't using a kind of toy bow exactly, to shoot yeah. fish. They had guns at that point. Nor <laughs> did they live in igloos because mm. they had houses. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, the, 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 the mail cart express or whatever it is, that's a set, that's a stage set. But it's kind of, I mean, this this kind of goes into a weird vein of historiography or kind of um, when people talk about writing history, um, there were very different ideas going on throughout history. Like uh, we're given um, Herodotus is held up as the example of being kind of the godfather of history of historic writing because he was to some extent um, trying to establish a kind of factual veracity through um, using lots of varying sources and applying an analysis to that. 
Um, but again, he did also talk about like giant ants that mine gold uh, to the behest of the people of India. Do we know that at that point in history there weren't any giant ants mining gold though? Well, we did have kind of like dinosaur birds and things <laughs> alive in Africa as late as the 16th century. All I'm saying is that um, it's not been disproved yet. No, that's true. <laughs> um, um, but then kind of there were later traditions when it was going over between uh, Greece and Rome uh, and indeed into the whole kettle of fish of theological history, which we um, can't really get into here. Although we did touch on, in fact, briefly when we were talking about uh, Venice. That was, um, <laughs> I can't make a very tangential point. I'm already on several tangential points, so be my guest. <laughs> Just uh, on a, co- a completely different vein. I remember one of the interesting things about the horrible film 300 was mm. precisely that there are supernatural mythical creatures in that film. Yeah. There's like there's the goat-headed man, there are kind of orc things, which are presented in a very non-outrageous way, I want to say. Yeah. And I, I found that a very interesting sort of conceit because it's, this is the world for the Greeks. I mean, there are such things. Yeah, and because, I mean, there is that, uh, I believe his name is Catesius. Uh, he was a Greek uh, doctor who um, went and kind of performed medicine in Persian courts for many years um, and went to India. And it was in India that um, that he supposedly saw all these things like um, like dog faced men and um, cannibals and people who well, we know cannibals exist, but um, <laughs> but men with uh, heads below their shoulders. Um, oh, uh, and the, you know, the, the Othello things he talks about. Um, but yeah, then he came back and talked about these things, um, and you know, wrote a whole book with some very, very interesting uh, kind of. I think the illustrations are medieval, but yeah, it's just like the further you go out, the stranger things get. That was the that was always the idea. Yeah, which um, which begs the question: not if such things really existed, but of course they didn't. But what? Why? Um, why did they perceive these things as existing? I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. it's perfectly possible that he was just being sensationalist. Yeah. But on the other hand, what's it? Um, to a the world, the world for these cultures was fundamentally different. They had a, uh, a fundamentally different conception of what the world was like. So mm. one expects to find these things. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. which isn't to say that makes them real in some kind of you know hippy dippy the mind produces reality kind of way, obviously. But uh-huh. it's that, but the um, the cultural milieu through which the world is understood is one that is literally rich with these creatures, and one expects to find them. Mm. And so, in the Bible, there you question that. So somehow, one does find them. One does perceive oneself as having. Um, uh, it's very difficult to actually express these things as trying to discuss cultures that no longer exist. But the world's always been weird, and it was weirder before, and it is still weird now. <laughs> but basically, this goes back to this idea of um, of like, especially in theological history, and when it came to kind of Roman military histories and things. And then later into kind of medieval British uh, semi-history chronicles, this idea that there are different types of truth that are being depicted uh, in texts. Uh, and if something is, it, a history becomes like an act of creative writing, you're demonstrating a moral truth. This is a truth being conveyed through true events. So even if you're not recording them in an entirely factually correct fashion, the meaning, like what this meant, is being carried over. And that is as relevant as the facts being relayed. But, I mean, to bring it back to the Blair Witch Project, (laughs) um, something like Triumph of the Will is a documentary film. 
but that's not, I mean, those are factual things, but it's not objective fact. That's precisely what uh, Lenny Riefenstahl tried to do after the war was insist that she was just doing, uh, what's it called, cinema cinema verite. Cinema verite. I was just filming what was going on in Germany at the time. A completely objective, non-judgmental way. And in a sense, it was a triumph of the will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a triumph of someone's will, yes. Yeah, definitely. Which is is obvious bollocks, because you can't, (laughs) Like I, I tried, to, I've tried a couple of times to watch Triumph of the Will just out of grim sort of curiosity. And one of the things that I mean, it's very, I mean, it is very boring. It's like yeah. in a certain because we haven't figured out how to make films good yet at that point in history. Oh, I don't but, know. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that's very striking is it is very clearly set up to make this stirring and inspiring. It mm. just is. It's not valueless it's not um, objective like i remember re- a really distinct moment what in the um, opening um in the opening scene when hitler's plane is flying through the clouds you they start off with fear, i think it's a like just some wagnerian instrumental stuff and then when hitler's plane comes into view the music very very neatly perfectly segues into uh, the host vessel lead which was the nazi party anthem oh, wow. and it's so obvious what they're doing there so sort of like <laughs> It's continuity with what we were and what we are now because he's brought us back to that. Then the plane descends over uh, Nuremberg and you see sort of there's the old imperial flags and the swastika. No, this isn't objective. It's not, it is very, it's propaganda. That's all it is. I mean, kind of, to a certain extent, the only thing that can be really studied through a documentary, and I'm going to sound extremely pretentious as I say this, but is... (laughs) every documentary becomes a documentary about itself and its own status as a documentary because it's like, you know, here are these documents we've covered and then the documentary becomes, uh, even if it's saying I'm objectively gathering together these documents that we've recovered, um, that's still, you know, that's that's a subjective gathering and then this, you watching it, it being distributed is like, uh, objective. The only thing objective about it is the fact that we're sharing that this person did this, and that you know, are now watching it. Objectivity is very often a uh, kind of like a, a mask over uh, an ideological position, which is anything but objective, which is subjective, mm. which is, is, is political. It's a value position that's being taken, and is disguised as a neutral position. And there, mm. there aren't such things. There's no such. There's there's no such thing as an unideological. Um, perspective on any element mm. of, a, of a human life and the human history and human society. And in, in that sense, like the Blair Witch Project is as real as um, as many kind of fact, supposedly factual documentaries in that sense, because what we're seeing is real stuff happening. We're seeing rain, we're seeing people um, become upset, we're seeing people forget their lines or, or, or kind of quoting lines that... We're uh, seeing yeah. very real mud, blood, sweat, tears... Farts, snot, all of it. That's screaming, screaming. I mean, it must a lot of a lot of the screaming was very, very sincere screaming. And very upsetting. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay, I've got everything on video, man. Oh Jesus Christ! I didn't even fucking see these, man. That's it, Heather. Heather, you got enough, man. Let's go. That's enough. Stop taping. Enough. Please stop enough. taping. Okay. 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 We're leaving right now. Okay. Okay. We're out of here. We're out of here. I'm leaving. Uh, we should probably talk a little bit more about horror films, I think. Yes. So, I mean, um, it's also worth bearing in mind that The Blair Witch wasn't the first, by any means, horror film to present itself in this documentary format. Uh, nor was it necessarily the first film to um, try and depict 
depict kind of, or, you know, present what it was showing as real, as a kind of uh, falsifying of a real thing. Um, we have things like Cannibal Holocaust is the one that people point to quite a lot. Uh, that one people did believe. And one of the things that's interesting about that, it was like one of the reasons why it was banned for a very long time was that it does in fact depict real animal slaughter. Um, which yeah. was banned under several codes. And in fact, uh, Cannibal Holocaust, the director did such a good job of marketing this as a snuff film that um, he was arrested <laughs> and uh, charged with murder. And in court, he had to get the actors to appear because he, what he had done was told them to stay out of the public eye for the next like eight months or something. So, oh, it's going to work so well. Everyone's going to think you're dead because I killed you. And it turned out everyone did think they were dead because he killed them. That's commitment, I respect. <laughs> we don't give him nearly enough credit. Who made that? Oh, I can't remember. Italian man. An Italian. Oh wait, film. it was like Ruggi. I'm not going to try and remember an Italian. I'm just, I'm just going to do it. Right okay. Uh, um, Cannibal Holocaust was directed by Ruggiero Diodato from a screenplay by Gianfranco Clerici. That was hard, right? Clerici. Um, but yeah, we've got. Uh, there was one in the mid '90s called UFO Abduction slash the McPherson Tapes. I wish I really liked. And which I think we're planning to cover at some point. At some point, yeah. We, uh, we might maybe we'll cover like a, because there's two versions of the film. Maybe we'll cover both at the same time. A double bubble for the uh, listener. <laughs> <laughs> and we're definitely going to call it that throughout the episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, and there was one called uh, Year of the Sex Olympics, uh, which by... I haven't actually seen. But but that was yeah uh, by Stone Tape and Quatermass creator Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal, the greatest man to ever lived. Yeah, <laughs> and also there was the kind of the BBC Ghostwatch fiasco, which was they made uh, the complete opposite of Blair Witch and Cannibal Holocaust. They made every every single attempt to try and make sure people didn't think it was real. You know, they had disclaimers and stuff. They had continuity announcements between on the adverts and things, but. Um, but yeah, then that that's a whole other story. But um, but a little little less known uh, film, in fact, is 1998's The Last Broadcast, um, which eerily similar to the Blair Witch Project is about um, some guys, some documentary filmmakers, going off into the New Jersey Pine Barrens in search of the Jersey Devil. Um, and as far as I'm aware, kind of goes a very similar direction to Blair Witch Project. Um, but yeah, we really ought to have watched it before recording this. Really, yeah, probably. I mean, it didn't <laughs> look great. There's been actually quite a bit of kind of fallout from uh, the Blair Witch Project, and even though I think, well, essentially, we both regard it quite highly as a kind of very solid piece of filmmaking. We, we, we both like it. I really like it. You really like it. Yeah, but I mean, that was that was. I think a lot of the backlash from it came from the fact that. Um, the status of it as a horror film and its kind of uh, stylistic and uh, performative achievements have been totally eclipsed by the Blair Witch Panic, the the hype that surrounded its um, that surrounded its release in 1999. Because uh, one of the things that really sets it apart from those other films that we reeled off, perhaps not in the case of Cannibal Holocaust, is the fact that um, there was uh, it was just so well done. It was um, very stark, very austere. There are no kind of there's nothing that really pushes the boundaries of uh, interpret. You know, there's kind of things that could be ambiguously supernatural, maybe natural, maybe supernatural. So, uh, and the, and the fact that yeah, unlike unlike with some of its ill-fated sequels, it didn't show anything. It just showed you literally nothing mm. except um, the fairly you know terrestrial, however horrible the terrestrial things that the filmmakers themselves witnessed. Also, it's interesting to know that um, there was. 
the people of Burkittsville hated it. All 124 of them <laughs> at the time. Burkittsville, Mary, Maryland was uh, never the same again. Even despite the fact that um, it wasn't even filmed, most of it wasn't actually filmed in Burkittsville. Like there are a couple of uh, depictions of it in the film, but some of that was other towns. Um, it's only a very brief kind of bit of the film in the opening anyway. And the woods themselves were... I don't know if there's actually a place called the Black Hills, but that's not where they were. They were in Seneca Creek State Park, mm. um, which also isn't that big. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's kind of really hard not to overstate the importance that the internet played in launching this film. Because um, it had received fairly muted responses from distributors when it was debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and was eventually taken up by Artisan Pictures after a number of other distributors um, just passed on it. Um, but... One of the things that's interesting about the response to this is um, the willingness to embrace the collective myth for everyone to get in on the in on the joke um, or kind of or contribute to the joke or actively want to believe in the joke was was vast and and I think took everyone by surprise because it wasn't just um, you know the filmmakers like oh yeah this is real or is it real or the studio trying to um, market it on those terms but. Um, but both simultaneously, the filmmakers and loads of people on the internet started in the same way that Slenderman would um, many years later, um, making their own contributions to the mythos. Um, and we had like, you know, because this was the age of the internet, forums were definitely a thing. And um, there were loads of web posts of things people claimed to have found, like people went looking for the house, um, people... Claim to the serial killer we mentioned earlier. Someone claims to have identified them and um, found some like re- records pertaining to their execution in the 1940s. So, uh, I, one thing I want to ask you, Lucy, is: mm-hmm. Are there people still now in the year of our law, 2018, who insist this film is factual? Um, has the or has the mythos died by the fact that it, it's not, and the people involved are alive and well, and you could probably go find them? Well. Um, <laughs> The cast have given interviews. That's that, that is uh, that's something. Well, actually, uh, one of the interesting things uh, that came up in relation to it, which I think we'll definitely pick up on again, is the fact that um, Pete fans, like particularly diehard fans or particular corners of the internet, who accepted the uh, basically they didn't take the filmmakers at their word that this thing was fake, um, or that if it was fake, that the filmmakers themselves were in fact, themselves part of... Well, they, thought, they thought the filmmakers were Satanists. That was one thing that was speculated. <laughs> and they said, like, no, for a while they were saying, no, it's real, and the filmmakers are covering their tracks. This was actually... This actually happened. Um, but uh, even if it's, like, it's a fictitious thing, people are still out there saying, like, no, this actually happened. Um, and this Or this was, like, a reenactment of something that supposedly happened. Mm. I think their numbers are very few at this point, because mostly because they've got other other more topical things to dwell on. Other um, more topical things to lie about and be mistaken about. In our, in our sinister and terrifying post-16 world. Oh, yeah. It's interesting, actually, because, I mean, you mentioned that you were kind of about six or seven when this came out, um, but you, and you don't really remember as much of it. I don't, I, uh, yeah, when it came out, uh, I don't remember anything about it, but it's also perfectly, but I think, maybe I, came, I had a sheltered upbringing. Right. <laughs> Whereas I had a, um, a mum who was a teacher and went on to teach media studies when it became an option, um, who was very, very enthusiastic about, not necessarily in terms of like believing this was true, but um, really taken with the idea of it. And um, 
didn't let me watch the film for a couple of years, but um, did did actually, you know, was very impressed with it and did explain what it was and why it was so important and clever to me. Uh, and yeah, and but I mean, like years later, actually, I was studying uh, A-level film studies and this was um, around 2004, 2005. Uh, one of the activities we actually did in the class one day was we all got down into the computer lab and looked up the IMDB page for the Blair Witch Project. IMDB, which was running in 1999, um, famously actually reported all of the cast as missing, presumed dead. Um, so again, media, uh, the media getting in on the action. <laughs> but um, but then uh, when you go down to... Uh, it used to have um, a particularly active... Um, a particularly active message board section, which I think has disappeared from the site now. Um, but that... Um, that actually still had some of the original posts from 1999 of people kind of speculating about whether it was real or people people who were, in retrospect, very conspicuously sock puppets from artisan's <laughs> uh, artisan pictures, um, saying like, "Oh, did you know that this was really they found they found like missing there's um, missing person posters or crime scene photos available on the web. Please go to www.blairwitch.net." Um, but yeah, that was that's it's. There are some very, very interesting relics of early internet arcana floating around out there still. And I think it's worth maybe I think it's worth stating the obvious point here, but precisely the thing that makes this film so frightening is that it feels like it could be real. That is that that is that is precisely the whole point. Yeah. Um, that which will you get from the uh, from the documentary style of uh, shooting and from just the whole thing of found footage yeah. as such, the possibility of its reality, mm. which is why I think found footage only really works on a small scale project like this. If it's something that it definitely could have happened because mm. it involved three people. Mm. That's it. Well, in contrast with um, Cloverfield, for example, which doesn't have that tension to it at all. It doesn't mm. have that inbuilt hyperstitional characteristic because New York clearly, New York exists. Yeah, it hasn't been blown up by a monster. Yeah, uh, but um, but that's but, but and all of this is what feeds into the hyperstitional dimension of the film that it does that its reality in in the material world is not that important for its success as as a meme as for for its success as a hyperstition because it creates itself. Um, through its believability, through the possibility of its um, of its reality. Mm. Well, there, there there were actually sequels to the the original Cloverfield film, which I thought was like um, documentary horror or disaster stuff was pretty passe by that point. It had been done um, even then, been more or less done to death. Yeah, it's been no, it's, it's been noted that since nine eleven, sort of like the uh, the appetite yeah. for seeing New York get destroyed by a monster <laughs> had definitely. Way, yeah. yeah, but um, but there was that sequel that I've not actually seen. Um, oh yeah, um, Cloverfield Lane, which you know I watched that when I, I watched that when I was ill recently. That's what I do when I'm sick. Yeah. I just watch movies. Um, it's kind of it's a bit more kind of clever. It engages a bit more with. I, I, um, <laughs> it's got John Goodman in it. Ah, he's often the best. He's definitely the best thing at this. And he's often the best thing, whatever he's in. It's yeah. not, um. It's pre- honestly, it's pretty forgettable. And okay. then uh, there was the Cloverfield Paradox, which came out on Netflix, uh, I think, a couple of months ago, which I've not seen, and I'm not planning on seeing. <laughs> By all accounts, it's terrible. Mm. 
But I mean, um, going back, but kind of back to the 90s, back to kind of the uh, cultural melting pot at the end of the century, at the end of the millennium, um, that was um, that that it emerged into. There was, I think, what we're looking at is a kind of culture particularly primed for this. Absolutely. Um, in particular, um, this was uh, very, very. Um, very much in the wake of the satanic ritual abuse um, scandal of the 1980s uh, that yeah. carried on into the 90s, a kind of almost a kind of functional parallel in terms of structure. Yes, it's, it's coming very much hot on the heels of all of that. But if if, um, uh, if you don't know what we mean by satanic ritual abuse, this was a very, very strange moral panic that kicked off in the United States uh, in the 80s and continued into the mid-90s. It was kind of waning at the time below which came out, but it was very much this set the scene for this. It made, this was the perfect time for a film like The Blair Witch Project to come out. Mm. So the satanic ritual abuse moral panic was a, uh, it was a hysteria, it was a mass hysteria essentially that broke out, uh, especially in the United States, but it happened elsewhere, which stated that there were groups of Satanists or uh, occultists who were abducting uh, molesting and killing and torturing children in a ritualistic manner, that this was part of a black mass, that, this, that these were magical rituals where um, awful things were happening to children. And this uh, manifested in various different ways. There was um, speculation that there was a vast uh, satanic Illuminati controlling the world that was doing this to kind of smaller level things that they either that there are networks of families who have and raise children precisely to sacrifice them to Satan. I was kicked off in uh, 1980 with a book called Michelle Remembers, where a, uh, which was written by a psychiatrist who claimed that one of his patients during a uh, during a session regressed to uh, herself as five years old and recounted her um, her being abused satanically by her parents as a child. Now, none of this is true. It, there was there is no reason to believe that any of these things happens. All the contents of the book is, is absolute nonsense and rubbish. Um, there are sections where she states that the reason she doesn't have any scars on her body from the abuse is because of the intercession of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. Um, there are all of these, all of the reports uh, that came out about this stuff, they were often, they were from people who were either uh, just outright attention-seeking or um, frauds, or disturbed people who were manipulated into creating fantasies which they honestly mistook for recovered memories that they had repressed, mm. or they were children playing along with it, because that's what kids do. Um, they have, of all of the reported cases of satanic ritual abuse, a very small number of them ever actually amounted to anything real. That ever actually turned out that no, there was um, actually uh, a genuine abuse of children going on here. Mm. And of those, a far, far smaller number uh, had any kind of a ritual element to it whatsoever. And even in those cases, this wasn't the point of it. It wasn't a magical ritual. It was just saying, it was more or less just saying, and if you tell anyone, the devil's going to come for you because I know him. Mm. Um, it was which is exactly the kind of tactics that abusers use. But the point is that for a lot of people in America at this time, all of these terrors from the past, um, witches and demons and cabals of Satanists um, sacrificing children, 
or it's still real. It's just under the surface. It's just this thing that's ever so slightly out of sight. It's happening not in your house, but it's happening next door. It's happening down the road. There's actually a very interesting dissection of um, of how the satanic ritual abuse uh, moral panic uh, materialized and functioned in uh, Jesse Walker's uh, The United States of Paranoia. Um, but there's also a book, which I'm going to try and track down after the podcast, uh, that concerned brainwashing, um, which looked into the ideas of like how, how these ideas manifest. I mean, he'd actually talked about how Freud, um, when he was he discovered uh, that a lot of the data he'd been recording when he was encouraging people to slip into kind of almost literally regressive states sometimes, or, you know, early on he was using hypnosis and things. Uh, He would get them to lie back and start relating things uh, to kind of freeform thought association. And he thought he'd actually kind of uncovered this kind of epidemic of child abuse, but it was in fact kind of just people people just saying the worst things they could think of, or people kind of like saying kind of fantastical situations that they'd imagined. Yes, I believe that um, with the Freudian thing, that um, because there was, an, uh, there was a, uh, an outbreak of what they vaguely termed hysteria, which was just a various cluster of neurotic symptoms that middle-class women were, de- were displaying in Vienna at the time, more or less. Yeah. And um, uh, Freud uh, at one point de- uh, announced that he discovered that all of these women had been sexually abused as uh, children, which just couldn't possibly have been true. And he de- realised this and backpedaled it because he did have, he, he did have integrity. Yeah. Like he realised all the actions. <laughs> it's like, no, sorry, it's it? bad data. <laughs> um, but yeah, but in, the, in that same book, um, he does... Well, they also talk about one of the satanic ritual abuse cases where uh, a young girl described being abused and um, was kind of talked into it by the authorities, as happens very often. Um, they'll say, like, oh, so were, they, were, they, were there men in robes or there, things like this? Um, yes, but, you know, yes, they got yes, the story yes. out of her. But then she implicated her dad in it. But the weird thing about that was the dad was completely wrong-footed by it, but then kind of bought into it himself, saying, well, I guess yeah, I guess that could have happened. Maybe I was having a kind of psychotic episode or something. And then kind of started building into the story himself. And they only realised that he was weirdly kind of implicating himself in it even more uh, when they started asking him questions that couldn't possibly have a, a positive answer um, that he was he was answering in the positive too. So it, it, was, very, it was a very, very interesting time. Mm. And there's still, I think, a huge amount to kind of unpack because <laughs> that we don't even know about yet or kind of haven't really figured out yet yeah because this is all fe- and it all feeds into um conspiracy culture of the 90s as well mm. actually but um about especially like um these people who would go on lecture tours um go to different churches and talking about how or how i um experienced the um the satanic jewish masonic illuminati John Todd, he was one of the main ones yeah get, and sort of like often these were people who did sort of like who did were demonstrating some kind of like psychosis on their own part and very possibly did actually believe that they had done these things yeah. duping people while duping themselves yeah exactly but these things they form a kind they do form a kind of a feedback loop they do start reinforcing themselves because you get all of these people who are saying that they encountered these things and they experienced these things or they heard these things which gra- which if you have enough people talking about something like that it grants a kind of credibility just out of the sheer numbers uh, involved 
Mm. Uh, and actually, on the conspiracy angle, there was a episode of the X Files came out in 1985 called Die Hand Die which is about a uh, the kind of like the I'm not sure what the equivalent would be in England, like the board of uh, parent governors or something like that, of a school in a, uh, in a town called Crowley or Crowley, <laughs> uh, who are all Satanists, and then there's a, a satanic murder happens, uh, and some teenagers are killed horribly, and none of them did it. So there's a well. Who, which one of us did this ritual then, guys? And it turns out none of them did. Oh, oh dear, oh dear. This is a bad one. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was a dumb episode. There was a lot of, as indeed is the case of most of the X-Files. It was it's dumb, but it was entertaining. Done with a kernel of excellence. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I think their value, a lot of their value just rests on their sheer kind of zeitgeistiness as well. Mm. You know, it's like they... There's a lot that wouldn't exist were it not for the X-Files. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay, talk, yeah. uh, talking just a bit about uh, the zeit- uh, carrying on with this zeitgeist of the 90s thing, is there is something really weird about it. I mean, the 90s were weird. They yeah. def- definitely were weird because then you get, the, when, like, in the early 90s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union mm. and all that, there's this idea of sheer optimism that, you know, the West has won, freedom has won. The end of history. The end of history, exactly. Yeah. yeah it was, um, and, but... As things go on, especially in the United States, um, a dis- certain disquiet sets in, and part of, and you know you get moral panics like the satanic ritual abuse thing, but you get other stuff as well. Like, um, like some of the biggest musician at the time were Marilyn Manson. I yeah. love Nine Inch Nails, but I don't love as much as Marilyn Manson. I love a lot more than Marilyn Manson. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the um, but the terror that a lot of people, especially conservative Christian, white conservative Christians, even Republican in America, <laughs> have is that these are the forces that are corrupting our children. That this is the reemergence of uh, the darkness of the past, uh, and that we need to fight this. We need to put on the armour of Christ and defeat um, the uh, return of Satan and all that. So there is something very, there is an undercurrent of despair going on throughout youth, especially youth culture in the 90s. I mean, hell, this is when Columbine happens. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that that, um, something as inconceivable as children marching into a school and going one another down is a thing that can happen in the world. Mm. And that's become all too frequent. Horrifyingly prevalent. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting, kind of going back to Nigel Nails and Marilyn Manson. Um, one of uh, my favourite pieces of cultural ephemera that surrounded the release of the Blair Witch Project was, in fact, um, the soundtrack. Um, and there's there's only actually one song heard in the kind of diegesis of the film. And of course, there is no non-diegetic sound, and that is to say, no, no, no kind of um, soundtrack. It's a documentary film, except for kind of the end credits ambience, perhaps. And that is. The song playing in is it Heather's car or something? The uh, or Mike's car, uh, digging lilies. Uh, the song Riggers, which I thought was Pixies for a long time, but um, but they released a soundtrack of like this was all, this is what was on the rest of the CD, and it is pure like pure I'm... kind of American goth '90s stuff. So it's like Ministry. Oh, no, it's not. I've, now... got, I've got it up just here, oh. and it's actually real. It's Has good it got, like, taste. It's is good. It got Skinny Puppy. It does have Skinny Puppy. Yeah, it's... that's the one. Gloomy Sunday by Lydia Lunch, The Order of Death, Public Image Limited, which is one of our favourite songs. Draining Faces by Skinny Puppy, Kingdoms Coming by Bauhaus, Don't Go to Sleep Without Me by The Creatures, God is God by Lyabak. Uh, shall I read? Oh, yeah. I will read out the West, actually. I feel I feel like I've invested a bit of time into this. Beware yep. by Afghan <laughs> Wigs, Laughing Pain by Frontline Assembly, Haunted by Typo Negative, She's oh, Unreal okay, yeah. by Meat Beat Manifesto. Typo Negative, who we stole the logo from. <laughs> Movement of Fear by Tones on Tail and The Cellar by Antonio Cora. These are good. 
I'm almost tempted to buy this. <laughs> I mean, like, I have all the. I mean, I have. I can get all this from Spotify. But I kind of want to have this. Blair I'm gonna Witch, get it. The Blair Witch Project soundtrack. I'm album. gonna buy a download and rip it to a DVD. Oh man! I or can buy CD, whatever the hell. I can <laughs> buy it used for a pound. Do it. Do oh, it. doing it right now. And as we speak, listener, I am purchasing. Uh, I've purchased the CD. Why have I done this? I don't know. <laughs> you're, just, you're just caught up in things. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, um, that was kind of interesting. Kind of the and the cult deprogram the cult deprogramming guy. One of the the reasons why cult pop, you know, mainstream culture was so wrong footed by the whole um, the whole sort of satanic uh, panic thing of the nineties. It was the fact that. Um, they tried initially to treat it like a kind of cult outbreak, like they'd seen in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think it's like Pat, Ted Patrick. Ted Patrick was quite a um, controversial figure on and of itself because a lot of the people were just kind of, not necessarily, people who were in cults weren't always brainwashed or people who were brainwashed weren't always in cults and weird stuff like that. And uh, even though he'd had a lot of successes, he'd kind of messed up a lot of people in the process and then became very kind of discredited, even though, you know, even though he's kind of also revered in a lot of circles. There's um, a documentary about him on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's it's in this documentary, in fact, that um, he encountered this young guy who um, had, he was basically just kind of a delinquent kid who'd like... Um, got involved with gangs and stuff, was into kind of satanic culture, you know, counterculture stuff, as was basically everyone uh, of that age and demographic. Um, but um, they thought because he was doing crime, you know, doing some pretty messed up things, that he was involved in a cult and they got Ted Patrick onto him just to say, no, you must think critically. You must, you've been brainwashed. You're in a cult. You're in a cult. And he just, he wasn't. And so he just like, got just this bizarre kind of, this bizarre man came into his house and he was forced to listen to him for hours um, and has never recovered, there's sadly. Some, oh, yes, there's some interesting cases as well in that documentary of people who perfectly happily went back to the cult afterwards. Yeah, back to the ashram. We yeah. liked it there. We were having a great time. Yeah, so I, I just, well, I just figured out that I just needed to tell this guy whatever he needed to hear, but I could go back to my friends <laughs> and we could keep on cooking vegetarian meals and praying. I think it's still up there. Definitely worth watching. <laughs> Um, but interesting to know kind of how um, all of this to do with the Blair Witch Project leads into uh, popular and counterculture of the 1990s. Um, one of the things that uh, Daniel Merrick, before he did, well, this was actually going back into Daniel Merrick's own history, um, before he became a filmmaker and before he went to college, he, um, he was involved in his own local UFO society, which he helped set up, uh, who would go around interviewing uh, residents of the kind of the area that he lived in. Uh, to talk to them about UFO experiences. And you can kind of um, see the seeds of the earlier parts of the Blair Witch Project kind of blair blending into that, the picking up um, picking up some kind of general current in the area and running with it. Um, but again, like that's interesting because UFOs were another of the big things of the 1990s because, I mean, they've been a big thing since the 1950s, but now they were being kind of reappropriated and were kind of... Especially with things like the X-Files. Especially, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, kind of, the X-Files really made it into this cultural archetype that it was kind of semi-ironic, but people believed in it as well. Um, and then, you know, it, it, there was countercultural stuff and it, it's kind of become the trademark of, like, 90s countercultural stuff. You'll see alien stickers on things. Um, but it also blended with a lot of kind of post-80s New Age stuff that we might be able to connect to the Martians via Stonehenge or things like that. But 
it's definitely, you can see that as being another of the many aspects that led up to the, the, the very, very much the kind of the, the ultimately very hyperstitious response that could never have not happened in response to something as brilliant as the Blair Witch Project. You've heard of the Blair Witch several times. Several times. And uh, what was the first incident? Well, I've heard, I've heard stories about her from people and neighbors and stuff like that. But also, I saw a documentary on the Discovery Channel or somewhere. Really? Once about her, about the ghosts really? and legends of Maryland. Yeah, it's a story my grandmother used to tell us all. Makes go to bed early. Really? Say if you stay up after dark or walk around the house too much, a Blair Witch will come and get you. But in terms of kind of thinking about how um, how the Blair Witch Project fits into our nexus of things to do with the weird, the eerie, and the hauntological, I think um, we've kind of touched on a couple of ways in which it could uh, cross over with hauntology. But uh, it's very, it's there's a lot to unpack about what is weird with uh, the Blair Witch Project. I mean, you said earlier uh, with regard to the satanic panic and things that, um, that it was modern culture or through modern means uh, connecting to something sinister and much older and more enigmatic. Uh, and that is something very much to do with the weird. That's um, the, the sense or the weird and it's um, uh, demonstrating through cosmic horror, the idea that there are these kind of channels going backwards, uh, back through history. Um, that lead to something inexplicable or indescribable, which is the, the very kind of essence of the weird. Um, There's a quote, actually, I'd like to read out here from uh, William S. Burroughs. Oh, yeah. Uh, America is not a young land. It is old and dirty and evil. Before the settlers, before the Indians, the evil was there waiting. Um, that is uh, very... I think that is... A, that's the archetype of the weird, right there. Oh God, yeah. The intrusion of the thing that was always already there. Mm. Exactly, precisely that. Uh, or perhaps of the hauntological in general, really. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that arrival. And that's and one of the things that we've not touched upon is the fact that it's a witch. Yeah. It's the Blair Witch Project. It is a supernatural film. And uh, more specifically, it's a witch is a character from a book you read when you were a child. It's an uh, element of ancient folklore and obviously neither of us are American, but um, We have our own witch panic thing. <laughs> but no, the point I'm, me I'm making is that the idea for, um, in the American mindset almost, the witch is this thing that's come back from the old land mm. and, has set, and has implanted itself here. But then that's not always totally the case because uh, the witch is something connected to something pre-Christian. It's connected to the land and it's a direct, it kind of enters our culture, um, but it is a kind of a direct route to the unknown, the pre-culture stuff that our culture and our supposed civilization and, um, and attempts to rationalize the universe have um, more or less eclipsed from our view, but are still very much present. And the witch is this kind of eerie, haunting reminder that it is still there and it is still wild. And especially the idea that uh, a land like America is still wild. Because yeah. we've, um, uh, in uh, with Britain and with Europe, um, we've been here forever. We can, uh, it's, it, the history goes back more or less neatly. Yeah. In America, there's the, for the settlers, there's the blank slate but then the discovery that the blank slate isn't blank. Mm. Um, there's actually something about uh, in the United States of Paranoia, Jesse Walker talks about very interestingly, that there was an idea 
among some of the early Christian settlers that maybe Satan got here first <laughs> and um, he's already had his way with this land because he knew he couldn't do that with a Christendom. Ah. So that's precisely the force that, um, uh, that uh, Christians will have to fight here. It's yeah. the devil himself because they're invading his territory here. Yeah, totally. And I mean, there's also just this, there's this wonderful line that the Blair Witch Project is kind of, even though there's kind of ambiguity about how much of it was scripted, there are some fantastically evocative lines that just kind of sneak in under the radar there because they're presented in such a naturalistic sense. Um, there's one that's going back to kind of our, our discussion of kind of the status of documentary. Uh, Mike, I believe it says to Heather, because uh, Heather's been filming, she's the one that's mainly filming the whole thing, um, says... I can see why you why you like this. I think it's to the. I'm paraphrasing, but I can see why you like this so much because when you look through it, it's not quite real. Mm. And this is kind of her escape through the mediums of medium of documentary filmmaking. She's kind of become enveloped into the um, into the uh, fabric of the documentary almost as a kind of survival tool. Yeah, precisely what she says is, is all I have. Yeah. And uh, I think it's Josh. I think because he, he starts getting very, very uh, abusive with her, just like shouting sort of that at her, sort of like, we're lost in the woods as a witch just trying to kill us. That's your motivation. Oh, God, yeah. And he, like, he slips into this suddenly, like, angry Hollywood director thing. It's like, that's your fucking motivation. Mm. <laughs> um, oh, man. But one of, the other, one of the other lines I was thinking about was um, Heather again. She says, um, you can't get lost in America uh, we've exhausted all of our natural resources. Mm. Um, and it's like, that's, that's kind of that. I mean, that's, that's not technically true because they have massive, massive reserve bits, but it's this, <laughs> it's this idea that it's like, no, this is a land we've conquered. How could this possibly happen? This is a little parcel of land that we can, we can go into for a day and then pretend isn't real or, or forget about the rest of the yeah, time. Again, that's precisely the thing that's so frightening is the implication that in this very ordinary part of the world, there's this extraordinary, totally malevolent force, which they're absolutely helpless against. Yeah. And one of the interesting things I found about um, about him when I first watched it, um, because I think this may have actually, I'm not sure, been a side effect of having watched it at a very young age and taken a very literal reading of the events. But the fact that they're lost and the fact that they're being kind of turned around on themselves, I took that to mean like they've gone into another world. This is kind of like the world of the fairies or kind of like... Um, Calling if anyone's ever seen like a field in England, that's kind of what happens. They 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 walk out of terrestrial space and into somewhere out of space, out of time, but a kind of parallel of our own world. But it's still wild, and they're now in the witches' territory. But that is um, yeah, that is something I found kind of profoundly disturbing about the film because I mean, there's there's those the one of the one of the scariest parts isn't like it doesn't even happen at night. It's when they um, cross a river, try and walk in a direct straight line, and then they realise they've hit the same river again. Mm. And that can only, I mean, it, you know, could be passed off as um, them being lost, them having one leg shorter than the other, as some say. <laughs> um, but it, it has this definite air of the supernatural that they are being manipulated by something they can't see. It's also a moment of absolute despair. When, yeah. they realize, when they when they realise that no, this is the same river. They just they have just gone full circle. It's the same spot in the same river as well. Mm. The same log is hanging over it. Yeah, and that is kind of in terms of in terms of kind of the uh, weird signal nexus of things. Um, I talked about this being an example of weird fiction for that reason, or for 
for the presence of witchcraft and things. But um, in the context of the film, a lot of the, the fear, the, the kind of scary ideas that come out of it, are very much connected to the eerie. This idea that um, there's a presence, there's a presence that's inexplicable, but is nevertheless there. So it's dealing with a kind of a failure of absence because it's there, but we don't know why. And it has some sort of agency that is somehow malevolent and somehow directed against explicitly against them. Um, and um, and yeah, then that is that is that is eerie. That is fundamentally eerie in the way that Mark Fisher describes it. Um, but it's just, we can't explain why that's there, but it's definitely there. There's three actually. Are you seriously fucking positive those weren't there? I am seriously fucking positive these were not here. How would we have like just made a campsite in between three piles of rocks just by coincidence? <laughs> you don't think this is strange? Going back to the weird. Should we go back to the weird? Let's go back to yeah, the weird. Back to the weird. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things on the theme of documentary horror. Um, the idea that, like, kind of documentary horror is, um, it was a relatively new thing in film, um, at least at the time of Cannibal Holocaust or something. But um, a lot of the, a, a huge number of the kind of classics of horror fiction have been through the documentary medium. We have Dracula, which is mostly a series of letters. Uh, we have um, Frankenstein, technically, because that's, I mean, some of it's described in the present tense, but it's like kind of a document in the logs of a shipman, the ship's captain. Mm. Um, but then uh, going back to kind of our kind of arch, uh, arch weird man, H.P. Um, Lovecraft, a boy. We have to think of a better title for H.P. Lovecraft than Arch, arch Priest of the. Well, I wouldn't want him to call, I wouldn't want to call him the kind of the Arch, arch Priest of the Weird, because he would have hated that. We uh, can call him that. He's also yeah. been called the High Priest of the Tentacle before. So yeah, that's quite a good one. Yeah. I think he'd be on board with that. Um, but yeah, the um, a lot of his um, famous stories were ca categorically documentary horror, including uh, the classic... Um, the classic uh, Call of Cthulhu, mm. which is a story arriving through uh, or manifest a kind of a sinister thing manifesting through its traces, uh, and that leads to this core of something that they uh, the the weight of it is felt, but we never see the, well we see the core actually, we, but but then we we never comprehend the core and we never understand truly what's happened or how it can't or whether it can happen again it's a similar thing with uh, at the mountains of madness which is very very precise in its locale and its description yeah. its scientific description of the things that are going on and in his uh, in his long essay about hp uh, lovecraft and michelle welbeck yeah, this is in his essay hp uh, lovecraft against the world against life mm. precisely talks about the horror of the precision in stories like uh, At the Mountains of Madness, where there is a, a where latitudes and longitudes are given. And the same thing happens in The Call of Cthulhu, where it does emphasize, well, it makes it more realistic, or it creates this air of realism to it, mm. uh, uh, or imbues it with an air of realism. But it's kind of that realism is kind of something very powerful about it as well. But coming back to kind of the. Uh, I'm going going to the kind of categorical theoretical definition of the weird that it's something inexplicable. It's something present, um, overabundantly present, but inexplicable in terms of our ability to comprehend or describe the thing that's present. Documentary horror lends itself incredibly well to that. I mean, that's that's one of the key strengths of the um, of the Blair Witch Project. It just doesn't have to show that much. 
Um, but thinking about kind of the place of the Blair Witch Project in the history of weird fiction, um, there's a couple of people have kind of, I mean, when it first came out, when there was still that kind of bit of slightly contrived ambiguity about whether or not it was real, people pointed to a couple of literary sources, uh, one of which was actually um, one of uh, uh, Lovecraft's close confidants, Robert Bloch, who, of, uh, psycho uh, of psycho fame, uh, who wrote a, book, a short story entitled Notebook Found in a Deserted House, uh, which has been compared as having kind of certain resonances with the Blair Witch Project. Um, but there's also, um, one of the ones that was brought up quite a lot is, uh, Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, which is about a kind of, some men going out on a, a boating trip into kind of the lower Danube, I think it's in Hungary. Yeah. Um, and encountering overwhelming supernatural forces there, but it's kind of, it's the sense, it's the sense that kind of, they enter into a kind of divine strength, or kind of darkly divine realm where the gods are alive and real and it's their plane that you've entered into in the same way that my kind of literally my um nascently literal reading of the Blair Witch Project uh, <laughs> saw these young filmmakers entering into themselves um but there's another story which is actually I ended up there's um there's a reading of it on YouTube I I um had to order the book and now it hasn't actually arrived, but sorry, it's not in the YouTube one. But um, it was released in uh, the Del Rey um, collection. Uh, sorry, you haven't said what the story is. Oh, the st I'm going into that. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. It was released in the Del Rey collection uh, stories of the Cthulhu mythos, and it's by an author called Carl Edward Wagner, uh, or Wagner, I believe, American, uh, called Sticks, quite simply called Sticks. Um, and one of the, what's interesting about that is, you know, the presence of sticks, because one of the most iconic thing, things about the Blair Witch Project is these mysterious sticks that supposedly the witch or one of their associates um, leaves around the tents or leaves in various places for them to find. Um, those, a very eerily similar thing comes up in the story Sticks, because it's about a man uh, leaving his home, going off into the woods and finding these inexplicable stick formations that someone's bound together roughly. Um, this was also an influence on True Detective season one, Ooh, yeah, which has uh, yes, where the uh, the the killer or the uh, the cult make use of these uh, strange found stick formations, yeah, which never explained. There's never any explanation given for what they are. There's but these things that they make. That's almost certainly a callback to that. But... I think yeah, I think explicitly it is. Yeah. Oh wow, but. Um... But yeah, what's interesting is like he goes, he sees these sticks, he doesn't know what they are, but they leave a kind of eerie, profound impression on him. And then he eventually comes to this house, not unlike the house in the Blair Witch Project uh, that they see at the end, this abandoned building covered in occult inscriptions where there's something terrible lurking below. Um, or potentially terrible, we don't, unclear, unspecified, but he does actually have a bit of an encounter there. But um Definitely, definitely check it out. <laughs> but, there's, a, there's, another, yeah. there's another film I watched recently that had a similar vein. It was called, uh, I think it was called Mr. Jones. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, I came across it on, uh, I came across it on Shudder. Again, it was when I was ill, so I was just going through, <laughs> I was just scrolling through horror films to watch. And it's a similar kind of, it's also a found footage film, but of a much neater variety. It's kind of presented as, like, uh, well, I don't know, actually, it's quite difficult to talk about it without, without spoiling it. It's definitely worth checking out, but it's about a young couple who go on retreat mm -hmm. to the hills. And um, 
and with the idea of reconnecting with themselves and with one another and one of them wants to work on his nature documentary where he realises that really he's making a documentary about him and his wife and all that and then they discover that in the weird house nearby there's a famously reclusive artist called Mr Jones who makes these terrifying scarecrows Ah. uh, and just sends them to people and uh, they and he goes and the uh, the husband sort of like goes back to uh, civilization to try and find out more about this guy and what he does and what the hell are these giant scarecrows around my house now? It's really I actually really liked it. It's that's that's what it's worth checking out. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the, the crucial thing with Styx, though, is that um, the, it doesn't just end in the house. He comes back to the world. He, this is in 1942, so he goes off to war. And then he's, he's working as an artist. Um, but his kind of, the, the, the kind of, the experience at the house has left this impression of him, on him that he um, has influenced his art. And now he's making just inexplicably horrible things and finding that it's, it's, um, deter- it's uh, detrimental to his career because no one can palette the things he's doing. And then eventually this horror writer gets in touch with him saying, hey, um, after uh, this is, yeah, yeah, he says, hey, um, I'm releasing a collection of these stories. Do you want to, I really like some of your work. Uh, um, please, please uh, do some illustrations. And then, um, then he does them and he, he goes back to his notebooks and he sees all these stick drawings he's done and he incorporates the sticks into the artwork. And then uh, a couple of very, you know, various things happen, but it, it turns out that um, what's, important about these sticks is that they hold this inherently kind of mimetic value and that they have an occult significance and by taking this image and then reproducing it and sharing it in the context of this kind of fictional illustration he has unleashed this um ancient ancient thing back into the world and it's taken up by culture uh, by you know popular culture because he's this famous artist and um and you know, it's it's the beginning of a kind of massive resurgence of a cult, not unlike kind of the cult of Cthulhu, but it's it's via the presence of an image, which is a bound series of sticks in these weird occult angles, and that is that is something that very much touches into the kind of hyperstitional thing. So. Um, the idea that um, when we're watching this film, that it's almost as if we're communing with the witch uh, herself, yeah. that it, or we are spreading her influence further. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, uh, yeah, it reminds me of something I read once. There were people, I think Billy Graham claims that there was an actual demon living in the celluloid of the exorcist. Uh-huh. And that by watching this, we're spreading it, we're encouraging it. There's a, I'm just going to pause it, just yeah. want to check well, out the date that something happened. Yeah, I mean, actually, that was an interesting thing because I think that might be connected to the fact that um, there were kind of different versions of the exorcist released on VHS, one of which cut some scenes of the demon in the of a demon thing in the background which were then later released on dvd but um but people i remember actually i was talking to someone i knew who was saying like oh yeah there were things that i i thought i saw in the film that i couldn't remember that i didn't see on the second watching such as the um such as you know there's a like i thought i could see demons in the background and it's like yeah, you, you you watched it in the cinema and then it wasn't on the VHS. So you they did a, they did a ghost watch on them and they got they got messed with un, entirely independently of the director's uh, creation. But yeah, but there was a in nineteen eighty five there was a uh, was American TV series called Twenty Twenty, which I, I the impression I get is a bit like Panorama. Oh yeah, and in nineteen eighty five they did a, they did an episode about the Satanists oh, and wow. say, uh, uh, very very. Uh, like very straight face about sort of like the satanic cults that are eating our children. Uh, and they talk about films like um, 
like the Exorcist, even though the Exorcist ends with the Catholic Church winning the winning, it's <laughs> uh, triumphant. Uh, yeah, but they talk about how these films, but at the same time, these films can allow a Satanist to get a, an image of the devil in his head, kind of uh, uh, kind of thing. The same thing with uh, heavy metal albums. I would recommend checking out uh, 2020 for Devil Worshippers from 1985. It's a really weird half hour of people very, very seriously believing in all of this, very, very sincerely, very genuinely, and also like as the, the, they are just destroying people's lives. Just a bit. Ruin people's lives. Like um, there was a, we'll tweet out some information about that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But yeah, there was sort of like people who ended up like um, ended up in prison for stuff they hadn't done. <laughs> I eventually were sort of like um, eventually sort of like mistrials were declared because it was all nonsense. It was absolute nonsense. But again, this is um, it's exactly what we're talking about here. That this was the perfect time for a film like the Blair Witch Project to happen because. It feels like it is actually happening right now. Yeah. That there is a uh, there is a resurgence from, of of uh, the forces of darkness, but corrupting true. corrupting the children, eating the babies, and uh, curiously, functionally, structurally, this is all very very similar to uh, the uh, anti-Semitic canard of the blood libel. Oh God, and the protocols of the others of Zion. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because uh-huh. the um, the blood libel was. Uh, I suppose you could call it a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it totally. Was, yeah, it was uh, a belief that was held prominently in pre-modern Europe that there were Jewish sects that would kidnap and ritually slaughter and cannibalize Christian children. Yeah, um, and bake it into matzah. Exactly. Bake the child. Bake the child. <laughs> bake the child into matzah. Yeah. In fact, uh, Lucy and I met in Norwich when we were studying at the University of East Anglia, mm. Norwich, and Norwich was the site of a cult dedicated to uh, a young boy called William, who supposedly was ritually murdered and eaten by uh, a group of uh, evil Jews. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, there is, um, in fact, Norwich Cathedral. They recently reopened. Um, there's this caveat yeah. here. They, they reopened the shrine to Saint William, but with a little message saying it's no longer dedicated to him because it didn't yeah. actually happen. It very, was based very... on kind of like anti-Semitic, a kind of anti-Semitic pamphlet released long after the events of like the the disappearance and death of little William of Norwich, like, uh, that probably had nothing to do with the Jews. Yes, um, uh, the, yeah, the shrine is, uh, yeah, the shrine is now dedicated to all, so to, um, <laughs> to innocence of all forms of persecution, yeah. which, as is proper. There's a very good episode of uh, Medieval Death podcast, uh, which is a fantastic podcast, which I will link to, uh, which covers the whole kind of weird paranoia and conspiracy, to conspiracy type thinking that surrounded blood libels and the death of St. William. Um, but actually, Eerier still, there is a um, small earth formation left over from a ruined chapel in the heart of the woods of like, Mousehold Heath, which is a kind of rather scurzy area of woodland just outside Norwich, um, which is where the supposed abduction and murder and uh, kind of pseudo-crucifixion of St. William took place. Um, and there was a chapel built there, but then the chapel was abandoned as like kind of saintly cults became uh, out of out of vogue with the Reformation and things, and then it then it sank into a ruin, and now there's just a couple of bumps in the ground uh, where that used to be, and that's just kind of, it has all this incredibly dark history contained in it. But that's, mm. again, this is going, it, it all kind of, it all weirdly links back. Um, that was, in fact, um, going way back to the beginning, which seems like 
ages ago now, um, <laughs> one of the stories I wrote for Creative Limited visiting Gastwich Abbey was based on that site. Um, so yeah, uh, it's available on Big Cartel page for one <laughs> uh, bit of a plug there. Um, anyway, uh, we're getting way off subject and short of time and energy. We've been on this for quite a while now. Yeah, like... it's going to be our longest episode. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, that was um, the Blair Witch Project, 1999. So, yeah, so in conclusion, it's it's really good and you ought to watch it. There's this, because I've encountered, I've encountered quite a, a few people who have said, oh, but it's terrible. And yeah. I think that, to a certain extent, that's become the, uh, the reflex response people have. Because, especially in face of how popular it yeah. was when it came out, but no, it's good. It's a really solid horror movie. We got a bit of blowback on the Twitter page when I, uh, yes, feed when I uh, shared, the, yeah, we, we got the, and the announcement. But no, it's it's really it's a really it's a really solid horror movie. Yeah, um, it does um, it does everything that films like Paranormal Activity Activity are trying to do, and they mm. do it better. I mean, I actually quite like the first. I like the first and third Paranormal Activity films, yeah. but um, it just. They did it with five, like five pence and some string. It's uh, and it, for a while I think it was the most commercially successful yeah. film to have ever been made. The um, the budget is ambiguous because I think some scenes were actually reshot when it was picked up by Artisan. Uh, but I'm not. It's not entirely clear what which. But that is something that's kind of affected the actual budgeting of it and made it kind of ambiguous. Um, but for all that, yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's amazing. You should watch it. Yeah, go see. I just, I, I used to watch, I had the VHS, I used to watch just the first half hour because the idea of just going around um, New, small New England towns making a documentary about witchcraft was the it was kind of just a beautiful dream to me. <laughs> probably influenced the fact that I ended up doing film studies uh, at least for one year at uni and then ended up doing this podcast. But I had a, I had a very it was kind of a generation's introduction to media studies. That's a very interesting uh, description of the Blair Witch Project from a friend of mine who... Um, saw it, so she saw it in her 20s when it came out, and she said that it was like watching a disaster movie, but without the disaster ever actually happening, oh. which sounds like, which sounds like, you're sort of pra- uh, like praise, <laughs> praising, with, praising with small praise, um, you know what I mean, but the, yeah. the point she makes, she says that she, remember, she said that what she always finds the most interesting part of a disaster movie is the bit before the disaster movie, which is slowly building tension. Yeah, the area. And, yeah, exactly, and it's exactly what we get with the Blair Witch Project, where it is just a build-up to this incredibly, horribly tense, disturbing moment when they find the house. It's like, Why is this house here? And cut to static. And cut to static. I, to, like, I didn't mention this earlier, but it's like the fact that the house isn't that old. Those are modern architectural techniques. That's kind of stud walling and stuff, and like kind of the the plaster cracking away and revealing those kind of wooden slats. Mm. That's you know, it's made, you know, it's kind of earliest nineteenth century. Yeah, well, well, I think the implication is that that's the house of Rustin Parr, the uh, I think that's his name, the serial yeah, yeah, who was possessed in the forties, yeah. or was influenced by the witch in the forties. This is his house. Totally. And there's also the idea um, relating to the. I mean, it feels like we haven't actually. In the circumstances, we've not talked about what makes the film itself that much. We've been, we've been talking a lot about the things <laughs> that go on around it uh, because I think the film was such a covered territory, really. But um, it's really scary because yeah. it's, because what is she? So what much the it... hell is the Blair Witch? Yeah. The friends, because again, I just keep quoting the more my more interesting friends. <laughs> but what the friends I watched, I rewatched this film with recently. One of them stated that he likes to imagine that she isn't a witch. She's just this force that's in the woods that the people, the settlers, assumed was a witch. Because what the hell else could it be? But there's no, 
absolutely no explanation is ever given for what's going on there. Although, apparently in the earlier draft of the film, um, this was being done to them by the fishermen they meet at the beginning. And <laughs> teach these college kids a few hard lessons about life. About not disturbing the fish. Which was, would have been uh, possibly the most... That would have been a terrible film. That would be like the harshest possible the reading. Sub, like subpar Scooby-Doo, yeah. Although Scooby-Doo did get in on the action. Oh, was, did they? Uh, fucking everyone did. Like, there was... There were, like, Lionel Blair jokes. You know... <laughs> no, I don't know. You have... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. We yeah. should not start talking about Lionel Blair. He's the one that's basically... Um, it was just a running gag in, like, uh, BBC sitcoms. Just, like, uh, innuendo joke, haha, <laughs> Lionel Blair. The joke was Lionel Blair was gay. Oh, uh, well, that's witty. Yeah. What yeah. <laughs> if they were just in the woods and Lionel Blair was there? And <laughs> some, like, half-assed innuendo by some, like, unnamed scriptwriter. Anyway. Anyway. We've been here far too long. We've been here far too long. So, we should, um, we've, uh, we've been recording this episode in our... In our hour and a half. We've, uh, we've recorded this in the living room of some friends of ours. We probably ought to let them have access to it again. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, that was our treatment of the Blair Witch Project. Um, I... Don't know what we're going to be doing next, but until such a time as when, um, stay weird, stay signal. Yes, that's what we're going with. We're going with that final, yeah. That's our final take on the outtake, and we're never going to change that. That's our sign-off. Keep it weird, keep it signal. Good night. Just